Hi everyone, this is Sean Maloney from Nutraceuticals World. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. In this episode, I talked with Tom King, the founder and CEO of Icon Foods, which is one of the largest importers, manufacturers, and distributors of clean label sweetening systems and natural sweeteners. Tom has over 20 years of formulation experience. I asked him about the study recently published in Nature Medicine that claimed there was an association between the sugar alcohol erythritol and cardiovascular disease and stroke. Tom and I also talked about sugar reduction and formulation strategies in various product formats. We're always happy to get feedback. You can email us at nutraceuticals at rodmanmedia.com with anything that's on your mind. Can you give me your assessment of this study, the erythritol study that that found uh, an association linked to heart attack and stroke? Yeah, that, I mean, so science, I I mean, Mm nature.com, super well-respected. I mean, I use nature.com as a is a resource like probably almost daily. Um, so they posted a, they posted a research paper, if you will, that was published by the uh, Cleveland clinic and Cleveland clinic also probably a highly, highly respected uh, institution for, you know, for the study of, of cardiovascular uh, health. And so I was very surprised. Well, I was very surprised to see CNN pick it up. And the headline was basically, you know, erythritol linked to heart attack and stroke. So, I mean, clearly I just jumped into the paper that was on nature.com. I also have a lot of colleagues and friends that are PhDs that work, you know, in heart health. Um, you know, and I hit every single one of them up and I'm like, does this, you know, what I'm seeing is like the, the science paper seemed to, to confuse, uh, correlation with causation and which that, I mean, that surprised me that they would even make it to nature.com when it was, it was purely correlation and it was correlation of uh, bloodborne or endogenous um, erythritol as opposed to dietary er- erythritol. So mm-hmm. erythritol naturally occurs in the human body. A lot of polyols do, in fact, like uh, arabitol, uh, inositol, like a lot of polyols just naturally occur. And with erythritol, I mean, erythritol levels endogenous erythritol levels in the human body naturally raise or elevate when there's been an episode of like a cardiovascular event, mm-hmm. like a heart attack or a stroke. And so 30%, so their, their sample group was men 60 to 70 years old. 30% of them had a prior cardiac event and 70% of them had suffered from some sort of metabolic disease. All of these are triggers for elevated erythritol in the blood stream. That's the correlation. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like the correlation between people that suffer heartache and people that have teenagers. <laughs> correlation, yeah, causation, maybe not. So, I mean, that's, from my perspective, the FDA grass study 
that was done 30 years ago has hundreds of references to studies, you know, claiming that that erythropol is safe. And this is backed up by the National Institute of Health that has several articles that are peer-reviewed and vetted that also state the same thing. Erythritol is safe. Additionally, the dosage level was between 30 and 100 grams, which, so <clears throat> bowel tolerance usually is hit at about 20 to 25 grams. So the amount of, of erythritol that was used in the study far exceeds what a normal person would be able to consume right. in, in an entire 24 hour period. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of holes in that study, but then as it made, made it up the chain to news outlets, which are, I mean, trying to get eyeballs um, and clickbait, mm -hmm. that's when it turned into, <laughs> causation so yeah. yeah that's i mean that would be my assessment in in the 20 years that i've been in business and been one of the larger distributors of erythritol in the united states we've we've never ever seen an episode of a cardiac event or or anything i mean i would say quite the contrary um our customers who use our products to, in their products generally have seen favorable results from people that consume them in getting their metabolic disease under control, which, I mean, sugar is the main cause for metabolic disease, which can lead to heart attack, stroke, even neurodegenerative disease. So <laughs> it just seemed to be odd. Right. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of emphasis on on sugar reduction and in, in formulation of products. Like, so this does seem to you like an outlier in that um, the safety data and the grass uh, designation for erythritol should stand on its own. And that this study grabbed a lot of headlines, but maybe shouldn't really shouldn't cause concern. I don't think so. But I think that the timing on it seems to be quite peculiar, because when you look at like the you know the fda uh like uh potential guideline for front of pack uh disclosure of added sugars when you look at that along with the usda putting limits on added sugars in the school lunch program to like 10 grams that's never been done before like they've always limited fats they're looking at now limiting uh limiting grams of sugar and sugar, I mean, is a main input in a lot of uh, mass-produced uh, consumer goods because it's cheap and it takes up space. And, you know, human beings naturally gravitate to sugar and will want to, want to consume more and more. So I think as I think when the more pressure that gets put on these these large CBGs, and maybe even the sugar industry, the more of these types of of articles, if you will, and pseudoscience papers will be coming out. Okay. I was looking at some uh, consumer data recently from, uh, this is from Health Focus International. Mm -hmm. um, 
and this is a U.S. consumers about their perception of sugar alcohols hmm. like xylitol, erythritol, and the vast majority, over half, fifty-eight percent, have a neutral uh, perception of erythritol. Thirty-five percent say it's bad. Eight percent say it's good. So there's a lot of people who are uncertain about sugar alcohols and and whether they're good or not. How concerned are you about the impact this study could have on consumer perception? Was that study done after the, this was before? This was twenty this before twenty twenty two data. Twenty twenty two data. I'm not overly concerned about it because there isn't a ton of options out there. Um, you know, I mean, you can use sugar, but I mean, sugar has been associated with you know with a lot of disease, um, which only leaves you the option of you know if you're using something to replace bulk in a formula you know, you're going to need like a bulking type sweetener. And there's really only two uh, grass, um, you know, FDA grass status uh, sweetener sweeteners that you can use at this point. And one of them is allulose. And the other ones are the polyols, which is going to be erythritol, xylitol, mannitol, sorbitol. Erythritol being the one that has the the lowest GI impact of all the polyols. So really in a food product, you only have two options and that's going to be allulose and erythritol. Allulose is not approved outside of the United States at this point as a, you know, as a sweetener. Um, And allulose is also not uh, whole foods approved. So for food manufacturers that are looking to uh, looking for options, there's really, you don't have an option except for erythritol at this point, if you want to sell your products into Whole Foods. Yeah, we do see, I've seen even um, looking at labels and, and new products, we see allulose a lot more. Do you do you see that as well? And Yeah, you- I, I love allulose. I mean, I would say that the supply, the supply chain on allulose is still not as stable as I would like to see it. And I think that the reason that the that the supply chain for allulose isn't stable is because each manufacturer uses different intellectual property in the crystallization of allulose. So allulose is a completely different sort of a uh, sweetener. It's an actual saccharide. So it falls into the sugar. It's just your body doesn't metabolize it, um, but it functions very much like sugar. It, it it burns at a lower temperature, meaning for baked goods, there's a little more challenge uh, to to using it. Um, but you know, it I like I like allulose quite a bit. I like the combination of allulose and erythritol because then you've got you're kind of straddling you know, two separate worlds. Like you have one that's a saccharide that's going to participate in Maillard. And is going to allow for for browning, even like activation of leavening and baked goods. But then by adding, you know, a small amount of erythritol, you suppress that tendency to burn quicker. Um, and it functions, the combination of the two function really, really well uh, in tandem. And in, in like frozen desserts, you know, like ice cream, um, the combination of erythritol and allulose are, are, I mean, perfect because the allulose 
increases overrun. That's like the fluffiness in ice cream, it's the amount of air that you get. Um, and the erythritol helps lower freezing depression point. And that, that means that like your ice cream is scoopable when it's below 32 degrees. So I love allulose. I love the combination of both. Yeah. Can we, you mentioned the supply chain. Can we dig into that a little bit and, and maybe talk about how, um, allulose is derived, where it's, Mm -hmm. where it comes from and how it's manufactured? Yeah, so allulose, allulose and erythritol are pretty similar in the way that they're that they are created. And so both of them use like a glucose substrate or a sub uh, like a, or a, a starch substrate that is treated with a, a bacteria or an enzyme that converts that converts that glucose into either a polyol or it can convert it into uh, allulose. And so allulose is going to be the metabolite that's left behind after, uh, like a corn glucose substrate is inoculated with a, with a particular bacteria. So what's left behind though, is, is a syrup. And so allulose syrup is very easy to make. You just basically are using the bacteria to ferment, uh, glucose and, the result is going to be allulose. The, the, the challenge, if you will, is getting the allulose to crystallize. It's a super inefficient like model. And so when you think about uh, the crystallization of allulose, it's very similar to um, the experiment that you might have conducted in, in science class when you were in, uh, when you were in grade school, um, where you, created a super saturated environment. Basically you took water, put in a bunch of sugar, it exceeded 21% of the total solution. And then you put a string in and then you drop one, one like uh, seed crystal, which would be like, you just drop in one little crystal of sugar and then you come back in a couple of days and you've got a string that's covered with crystals. And so that is the method that is used in, in creating a crystalline allulose. Um, each one of that, like seed crystals and each process is individual, like intellectual property that is owned by each manufacturer. So when you look at the process, that's where, that's where the bottleneck is. So a lot of companies are able to manufacture allulose syrup. Like there's a dozen or more companies that do that efficiently, um, to get it to crystallize and to maintain the crystal is where the challenge is and that is where uh that's where the supply chain starts to get a little wobbly got it interesting now now allulose doesn't uh count toward the added sugar content on nutrition facts panels is that right yeah that's correct so in 2019 the fda uh passed ruling that uh that allulose no longer needed to be uh, reported as an added sugar. It still shows up as a carbohydrate, mm-hmm. but a lot of manufacturers that, that we work with will actually uh, show allulose on a separate line. And that gives the consumer a, a way to calculate net carb impact. So like you're not you're not impacted by the carbohydrates that are in allulose, like the carbohydrates in like a Snickers bar or something. Mm-hmm. So it, 
you can pull it from your total carbs and the result will be your net carbs. So the, the popularity of gummy supplements continues to be really strong. What do you make of efforts and strategies to reduce sugar content in gummies? Um, well, I've worked on dozens of gummies and I mean, gummies can be pretty challenging. Erythritol is not an option for gummies um, just because it has a low molecular weight. And what happens is you can make a gummy with, with erythritol. By the morning, you'll have a puddle of water. Like it just will pull every bit of water out of it. And so you even when you look at like some gummy manufacturers that like to put a sanding sweetener on the outside of their gummies, don't use erythritol because your, your gummies will just disappear into the vapor overnight. Um, but some options, like the, 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 I think that the sugar-free gummy category, what I've seen is a lot of people using a lot of fiber. So fiber is super effective in, in, in making sugar-free gummies. But the problem is, is that if you use like one particular type of fiber, like let's say you used uh, gum acacia or let's say you use chicory root fiber. If you're just using that and that is your, you know, that's what you're using to hold the gummy together. And what will happen is you, uh, is the dosage level of those gummies will be super low. Like you might be able to have two or three of those gummies, but if you exceed that, you're definitely going to be hitting like a bowel tolerance level and not so much like drawing moisture into your, in, you know, into your bowel, but more fermentation, meaning that you're going to be sort of um, monoculturing one particular bacteria in your, in your microbiome and the metabolite is going to be gas, <laughs> gas and bloating. So that seems to be, that seems to be one challenge, but most of the gummies that I've done, I've used allulose, uh, crystalline allulose with allulose syrup. I've used a digestive resistant maltodextrin um, derived from uh, cassava um, and then gelatin. Like gelatin really works amazingly well in formulating sugar-free gummies and pectin. Uh, you can use that in formulating like a no added sugar uh, plant-based gummy. Where, do you, where does monk fruit um, factor into the equation for, for reduced sugar um, in gummies or in, in, you know, other food beverage products? Yeah. Monk fruit. I mean, monk fruit is, is fantastic. Like I use monk fruit. I use monk fruit in a lot of different formulas. There are some off notes to it. And I mean, the thing that somebody needs to consider also is like, if you're manufacturing, if you're, if you're formulating a gummy or formulating a beverage or anything that you're trying to like employ clean label sugar reduction, <laughs> monk fruit extract is about 300 times sweeter than sugar. So to put that into perspective, one eighth of a teaspoon is going to equal approximately, uh, one cup of sugar. So if you're pulling out all of that volume, right? It, what do you, what do you fill that space with? So a lot of times using high intensity sweeteners, like, uh, like monk fruit and even stevia, you have to find something to, to 
use as a bulking sweetener like allulose or erythritol um, to take up that space that those high intensity sweeteners just aren't able to do. Yeah. Where do you see the the stevia market today and how it's evolved over over the years? Well, I've been in it for a long time, <laughs> too long, some people say. <laughs> um, I think that, the, that it's more exciting now than it has ever been, mostly because of bioconversion. So like being able to actually create a stevial glycoside from other glycosides, like I'm thinking about like Rebodiacide M because Reb M seems to be uh, a super interesting glycoside right now because it, it works really well as a sweetness modulator. So it plays well with other glycosides. If you blend it with uh, like Reb M with, um, with monk fruit, they have a tendency to mask each other's off notes. Um, they hit the palate at different times. So it's pretty exciting on how, you know, using bioconversion and fermentation and taking like a lower grade uh, stevioglycoside and be able to convert it to a specific glycoside is amazing. I mean, it's efficient. It's driving down the cost. It's still clean label. It's still non-GMO, um, you know, and I'm excited where that's going because the off notes are becoming less less of an issue and the bigger issue is just filling up the space that's you know left behind do you put in a fiber do you put in a bulking sweetener um yeah those off notes masking those off notes is really important these days considering the growth in plant-based products oh right? huge but mm -hmm. i mean to your point about plant-based products like when you look at protein drinks like plant-based protein drinks most of them are using like pea protein and pea protein requires a lot of masking. I mean, and using like a sweetening system that contains both both stevioglycosides and like mogerside five, which is found in uh, in monk fruit, like using the combination of those two actually helps mask off some of those bitter off notes that you would pick up from pea protein. Great. Was there was there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to add? Did I miss uh, anything in terms of like what you'd ex look out for or expect or any other combinations, ingredients that you think are, uh, you know, worth worth people's consideration or understanding? Well, I mean, one thing that I've been working with, like one, like a sweetening system that I'm in the process of, of uh, bringing into the lab actually bringing it to the next level is for a beverage company. I'm working on a reformulation that I'm using Thalmatin in combination with Reb-M. And I'm using the uh, uh, digestive resistant maltodextrin as the carrier in that. But that combination of Thalmatin and Reb-M has been pretty amazing for me. I mean, in a, in a beverage environment, it's just very, very neutral. And the sweet, sort of the sweet profile aligns really well with, with you know, the sort of temporal effect that you would get from, from just using sugar. So that's one that it's like, I don't know, that's the one that makes me pumped to go to work. Like, cool. like let's see what we can do with this. So Thalmatin, Thalmatin, I think is going to probably be the next big thing in the next 
probably a couple of years. Interesting. Great. Yeah. Yeah. The, the number of beverages that we see in, in, at shows, events like Expo West is really incredible. There's so many beverages that, that come on the market. Um, and many of them, you know, include, you know, herbals, uh, mm-hmm. adaptogens. Yeah. Are there, how do people overcome that, that sort of, and, and many times these, these have different flavor profiles, bitter, yeah. bitter notes, you know, how do people, yeah. um, you know, what challenges do you see on that front in terms of herbals in, in beverages and, and how to overcome them? Yeah, that's a really good question. Like I would consider, like, I mean, I formulated everything from like baked goods to bars, to cookies, to beverages. But I would say that I'm pretty good in all those categories, but it's like beverages. That's my hotspot. It's like, how do we, you know, and particularly like energy drinks where they're using like maybe vitamin B that's got, you know, B12's got some, some interesting off notes or even like a lot of times like the uh, adaptogenic uh, herbs and stuff like that. Ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. I had a formulation that used uh, amla, which was super bitter liposomal vitamin C, which is always hard to overcome. Um, but honestly, it's like, I've got a lot of my toolkit, like with these beverages, with these particular beverages and these off notes where they're a challenge I've Thalmatin has saved my butt. Like I've like gotten into some formulations where I'm like, I can't do anything with this. Like I've used different combinations of verbodiacides. I've used different combinations of like, uh, you know, monk fruit. And it's like, I can't seem to quite cover it. And in the end, when I get something that close, I will drop in like a small amount of Thalmatin. And it is, is it, it is sort of, as easy to use as sucralose like sucralose is one of those like i don't use it just because it doesn't follow the ethos of our company mm-hmm. but sucralose is one of those things where you can be a pretty bad formulator and mm-hmm. throw in some sucralose at the end and it's like oh that's magic it's better now um that's that's thalmatin for me like <laughs> i can get all the way to the end and it's like yeah i still have some off notes and i'll drop in the smallest amount of thalmatin and it clears it up well tom well i i really appreciate all your insights thank you very much yeah it's absolutely my pleasure sean